Hello world, it's John Pinter, your roving realtor, Bon Vivant, and I am here with uh, Ted Stefanos. I got the right blobble. I got That's the right blobble. You got it right. Very good. From Home Guard, Natural Hazard Disclosure, and uh, Rafael Batances from Home Guard Incorporated uh, Termite Home and Roof Inspections. And uh, uh, Ted, I'd like to talk about the differences in fire zones as it pertains to the realtor and the buyer more proactively looking at those disclosures before they even start looking for a house. Okay, so let's, when I'm setting up disclosures, uh, when I'm setting up my home search, okay, I want the buyer to be pre-approved no more than a million dollars, say. Uh, the buyer wants at least three bedrooms, two baths. The buyer wants an 8,000 square foot lot or more. The buyer wants a two car garage or more. Uh, I think uh, based upon the last video that we did and uh, certainly the challenges that California is having uh, with all the wildfires, I think uh, a new standard of practice needs to be implemented based upon you enlightening the audience on our last video about the, the differences in uh, the fire zones and response times. What do you think about that plan? So you're saying um, from a buyer standpoint, where would they want to live in order to mitigate their risk? Or where would they not want to live to in order to mitigate their okay. risk? Okay. Pick one, either way, either way. Right, right. Well, yeah, the, the thing is, the maps that are out there are publicly, publicly available, so buyers can go to whether it's a state website or CAL FIRE to look at those fire maps to try and reduce their risk living in an area. Now, a lot of times they're, they're going to take that risk in order to get that view, you know, whether it's a panoramic view or, or a hillside area, and but there are measures that can be taken in order for them to try and, and minimize their risk, even if they do decide to live in a fire hazard zone. Okay, so let's go with that. Let's take uh, the fire from two, three years ago uh, that burned within the city limits of Santa Rosa. Okay, now uh, please remind uh, the audience and I, uh, what would be the name of that category of uh, wildfire disclosure location? What do you call that? Um, you mean the state responsibility areas? Is that what you mean? What? Uh, or the urban, urban areas? Yeah, there's, well, there's uh, the wildland urban interface areas are areas that have essentially urban sprawl that's encroached up into wildland areas. So like North Santa Rosa, for example. So when Santa Rosa was first uh, established in the 1800s, that, um, that, you know, was mainly clustered around where downtown is now and then has over the last 150 years plus has expanded into hillside areas and areas that are more remote. So those areas like Fountain Grove, north of Santa Rosa, uh, sustained a tremendous amount of damage in the Tubbs fire that burned. But uh, when you compare the history of wildfires that have burned in the area in the past, there wasn't as much damage because we didn't have people living in those areas. So right. 
So uh, let's let's go. So let's go in this direction. So most of that category of wildfire disclosure is going to be in city limits or be serviced by municipal fire departments. Is that correct? For Santa Rosa? Yeah. Yeah, it would be under jurisdiction of the city of Santa Rosa Fire Department. Uh, now, when you move into the unincorporated areas, so areas like, um, you know, Mark West Springs Road, areas between Calistoga and Santa Rosa, those would be called the state responsibility areas that are under the jurisdiction of Cal Fire or volunteer fire departments. Okay, okay. So that's where you get into response time that might be a little bit longer. That's correct. If you're in a more rural area, the response time is going to be greater and possibly it won't be the city of Santa Rosa or city of Calistoga responding, but it would be Cal Fire. Okay, so, so while we're in the city limits of Santa Rosa or using Santa Rosa as an example, uh, and you do have the comfort of knowing, yes, I'm in a fire zone, but yes, I am being serviced by city fire department. Um, let's talk about what can you really do to mitigate your risk if you're a homeowner in that kind of uh, densely populated area that could be subject to fire? I mean, are yeah. you just as good as your next door neighbor or can you do defensible space in that kind well, of Well, one, one of the problems was, or one of the issues really, is that the Fountain Grove area had everything in place. Okay, it did have the defensible space. It did have the fire protected roofing. It, it had all the measures in place to guard against uh, wildfire hazard. The problem is, is that that night was just a worst case scenario times 10 where you had the hurricane force winds that blew. So no matter, even if you had the fire protective type roofing, fires were still blowing up under the eaves and into attics and embers were blowing the college park area right which is to the west of um fountain grove that's the west side of 101 flat as a pancake totally destroyed because of the embers that blew in from the hills and into that neighborhood absolute tragedy i don't think anyone saw that coming how do you guard against that i really don't know i, I mean that was a a firestorm, literally, I mean, because of the winds that were blowing. Now, if you didn't have the winds, the fire would not have spread. I mean, it's just like the Santa Ana winds that Southern California deals with on a, uh, you know, right now, uh, September, October, November, uh, where you have a, a high pressure system to to the east and a low pressure system sitting over the of the Pacific, and you have the winds that that blow in that direction hot dry winds that um create these firestorms so now how do you guard against that I, I i don't have the answer okay so so bottom line is the the question is not ultimately is not so much how you guard against it. i mean you guard against it to the extent that you can with the ventable space and uh, all the other things that cal fire recommends uh, but when you're a buyer trying to make a decision on where you're going to buy, yeah, uh, you just got to look at the the reality of uh, buying in an urban fire zone where you may have access to municipal fire departments, but because of the density 
uh, that has its own set of risk, correct? Okay. Yeah, without, without a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, uh, yeah, it's, um, it, it is, it is difficult. I mean, I, my, my daughter was all stressed out with the fires that were burning a couple of, uh, couple of weeks ago and we're in the flats in Silicon Valley area. And I, you know, I had to reassure her, there's no way that the fire is going to come over the hill and down into Silicon Valley. Um, you know, and I said to myself, well, is it possible? Can we, embers be flying that far? Uh, but, you know, I, I reassured that, you know, the, the area that we live in, the flat area, we don't have a risk of wildfire. I mean, it, I was 99.9% right. .9 sure that we were totally safe. Uh, but, you know, my, my father's house in Los Altos is up in the hills a little bit. And you, you know, you have oak trees all around and, you know, if the fire did come back over summit and down the hill and, and wasn't able to be stopped. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a higher risk there, uh, lower risk, but there's still a modicum of risk, no matter where you are, if you're in those areas. Right, right. Okay. So, uh, germane to the risk in an urban fire area. Let's talk about uh, the uh, the non-urban fire area. Again, remind us what is that category of fire disclosure? What do you call that? The state responsibility areas? Yes, yes. Okay, yeah. so now, uh, of course, we have a little bit of a higher risk in that it's not serviced by municipal fire, so there's a little bit more of a response time. Uh, you may have more elevation, which means you may be subject to higher winds and more quickly moving fires, correct? Yeah, yeah. And the response time we covered, we talked about, you know, the, the added response time uh, in those state responsibility areas as well. And the fact that you don't have, uh, likely you won't have fire hydrants, water suppression equipment available to extinguish any fires as well. Okay, so let me uh, be a contrarian and see uh, one silver lining on those areas. Because you're more remote, because you're not as densely packed in with your neighbors, it would appear to me that you would have more opportunity to fire harden your house and create more defensible space because you're not subject to being fire infected from your irresponsible next door neighbor. Is that correct? That is correct, but answer answer me this. If you're living, what is the reason for living in the hills and those fire, and those, um, those gorgeous areas? Is you wild. wanna have that wildlife. You wanna have those, that yeah. vegetation and trees right there. You right. wanna have the shade. Um, so that's why people don't mow down all trees within a hundred feet of their home because then they're just, you know, it's just not as, it's just not as aesthetically pleasing to have barren landscape within a hundred feet of your home. So that's why people don't do it. Right. Well, that, that's a good question. So let me throw this question at you uh, because I think the direction that this video is taking is if you currently own a home up there, or if you're thinking about buying a home in, in a more rural fire zone, um, is it possible to bring in a landscape architect? Is it possible 
to create an environment that is going to mitigate your risk and still give you what you want living in that rural area. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a way to do it. And actually there are requirements to do so. That's the thing, but I don't think they really get enforced. Uh, right. So uh, now there's going to be some new laws being passed regarding uh, defensible space and that brush clearance part of Senate bill 190. So that did pass. Now how, how much that's going to, make an effect we'll see uh because i know oak trees in california we have a lot of them in, in the foothills but you can't cut those down correct right right the the arborists do not like that so uh, isn't that uh problematic i mean that those can still i mean no eucalyptus is the worst i think when it comes to uh right. to fire hazards but oak trees can still burn as well so, you know, it's, uh, it's that push, uh, what, what do you call it, um, pushback that we get with in living in California, where, you know, we don't want to, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to limit the amount of logging that we're doing in California, but then the other side of the, the, the coin is like, well, by not thinning out the forests, are we um, contributing to these wildfires. So, you know, that's a, it's a really good topic. It's a hot debate right now on what side, you know, I hate it that it takes a political vent, but it, but it is an issue. Does that, um, does that contribute to having wild, um, uh, these worse worsening fires now, or is it the climate? You know, it, it it's all a really good, it's a really good topic for debate. Maybe another, uh, podcast. Right. Well, uh, you know, for me, uh, I'm a pragmatist. I mean, I'm doing transactions all the time. And part of the value that a realtor brings to the party for the client, uh, whether it's a buyer uh, advising the buyer, let's take a hard look at really where you want to live, what you want to live in, what the risks are, and be very mindful and proactive in terms of taking uh, fire disclosure uh, just as seriously as your loan pre-approval, your max purchase price on the search, the bedrooms, the bathrooms, the lot size. Let's also be very proactive about how are we going to consider or not consider homes in fire zones. And then if I'm a listing agent and I'm talking to a seller, I'm explaining to the seller, let's be very competitive on our price. Let's mitigate the fire risk to the extent that we can. Let's make good disclosures and understand that we're going to really need to incentivize a buyer to take on this risk. Does that make sense to you, Ted? Yeah, it does. Um... And then when you factor in the whole issue with fire insurance, I mean, will that, the increase in fire insurance costs actually devalue properties in these fire hazard zones? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very good. Okay. So the so takeaway. You get into a, you yeah. get into a bidding war, um, you know, or, or, you know, lo try and lower the, the listing price from a buyer standpoint because of the risks that they're undertaking, so. Well, also, uh, I mean, 
as a listing agent and a seller, you cannot be cavalier about offering a property for sale and hoping the buyer and the buyer's agent can uh, mitigate the insurance situation for themselves. You got to be proactive and put together a half a dozen quotes, as far as I'm concerned, and putting it in your disclosure package so mm-hmm. you don't wind up with a transaction that's contingent upon getting financing, but you can't get the financing because you can't get the fire insurance. Yeah. You know, so, uh, okay, so the takeaway uh, on this, I think, and what I'm advocating for in this video is for realtors and buyers to be, and, and sellers and listing agents for that matter too, to be much more proactive in uh, putting the fire hazard disclosures front and center and really thinking about what the risks are and what the mitigations are and what the costs are. So that way everybody can be mindful when they're making a decision rather than what is typical in the real estate business, or let's say not unusual, uh, where the uh, natural hazard disclosure can be considered a poor stepchild and people are reading every line of the roof inspection, the termite inspection and the home inspection, but they look at the natural hazard disclosure, which is 60 pages, their eyes glaze over and they just click through everything without reading it. Does that sound possible, Ted? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. Yeah, I mean, I, I've I've been doing this long enough now, 27 years, where sometimes uh, it's the wrong part of the NHD report that they're focusing on and kind of missing the glaring issue that I see. So mm-hmm. uh, that's for again, like a whole nother issue as well as how to read these reports and get the most out of them because. You know, what we do, it's not, um, it's not like, we're, we're just gathering public information that anyone can access. We're not mm-hmm. forming an opinion based on anything we're finding, like faults or fire zones. Uh, yeah. We're just giving you the information and disclosing that. But there is a lot. Of, I mean, the, when I first started in this industry as a one-page report, it was just flood zones and fault zones. And now, as you well know, you're talking, you know, 40 to 60-page reports that go way beyond the scope of natural hazards. Well, because I'm 150 years older than you, when I got into the real estate business in 1974, we had one blank page for a purchase agreement. Yeah. You, you hand wrote everything into the purchase agreement. Right. And, and with that, we will wrap up this video. And again, the takeaway is from Ted's well-stated uh, advice is uh, to be more proactive for all parties involved uh, before you even get involved in a transaction to understand what the implications, the cost, and the risks are of living in certain areas and making sure that you make an informed decision uh, even before you list your property and before you're in escrow. So thank you everybody for watching and we will see you at the next video.